All right, so, Mr. Jonathan Edwards, some biographical facts. Born October 5th, 1703 in East Windsor, Windsor, Connecticut. He died March 22nd, 1758 from pneumonia in Princeton, New Jersey. He was best known as a pastor and author, quite possibly America's greatest theologian. Um, he was born the only son of 11 children. So he had a lot of sisters. <laughs> His father was a Harvard-trained minister. He was um, very academic from a very early age, and they started teaching him Latin at six years old. He entered Yale at age 12. He earned his bachelor's at age 17 and his master's at age 19. However, at the time, Yale was only 15 years old. It had no permanent home. So it was kind of a very, very early uh, start of Yale. But even from that time, he was horrified at the behavior of the other students. Could not stand all the licentiousness and other things that were happening. Card playing and the like, swearing and whatnot. After he got his master's, he briefly pastored the Scotch Presbyterian Church in New York City for about eight months, 1722-1723. He then went back to Yale as an instructor. And then after that, he took a pastorate, well, pastorate sort of. He was assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, at the Northampton Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. So that was his gig. He assisted his grandfather, who was a well-established, very, very faithful, uh, although theologically weird, um, minister, very well-loved, and he served there for 21 years. And just a little snapshot of what ministry looked like in the, at that time. He preached two two-hour sermons a week. So two two-hour sermons a week. And you guys think that I go along sometimes. He catechized children. He counseled people. And somehow he, meant to, he also managed to spend upwards of 13 hours a day in his study. Studying and writing. He was a man who would find some theological problem and he would just immerse himself in it until he had written everything he possibly can. He was a very active, you know, some people when they read, they just write and write and write. And so he was definitely one of those guys. For some crazy reason, maybe because he didn't want to use a, a separate piece of notebook or whatever, but he took one of his Bibles and he separated every single page from the binding. He took the whole binding apart of the Bible however many thousands of pages that might have been, right? And then interleaved a blank piece of paper between each page. He made himself a yes. journaling study. He made himself a journaling study Bible, like you know, Crossway Publishers, you know, before it was cool. So he, he took the whole Bible apart, put a blank page in between every other page, and then sewed the binding back together. And then read the Bible over and over again and just made notes upon notes upon notes in his historically uh, known to be very tiny and very illegible handwriting throughout the Bible. So that's kind of like, that's the level of nerddom that we're dealing with here. It's, it's, it's staggering. He met his wife, Sarah, when she was at uh, the ripe old age of about 13. When he was a student at Yale, her father was a pastor too, so two PKs getting together. Um, they were married. July 28, 1727, he was 23, she was 17. Together they had 11 kids over the next 23 years. Eight daughters and three sons. Uh, 
Somewhat notably, you might remember his daughter Jerusha died from tuberculosis, caring for another giant of the faith. Remember who that was? Brainerd. Brainerd. Yes, he befriended Brainerd and his daughter went and cared for Brainerd at the end of his life and she caught tuberculosis and died at 17. Um, and another noteworthy child, his daughter Esther, lost her son, who was Aaron Burr Jr. Anybody know who Aaron Burr Jr. was? I think that was his dad. No, that's a dad. Yeah. That was okay. the dad. That so Burr Sr. did the duel with Alexander oh, okay. Hamilton. Okay. And I, I killed, he killed him, right? He killed yeah. Hamilton in the yes. duel. But his son, Aaron Burr Jr., was the grandson then of Jonathan Edwards, but he was the third vice president of the United States. So he's kind of, uh, he's kind of American royalty, I guess you'd say. He was dismissed or fired from the church at Northampton in 1750, which is crazy to think about, and we'll talk about that. He then moved to the frontier in Stockbridge and ministered to uh, Native American Indians, the Mohawk and the Mohican tribes, uh, until he retired and died. Hi there, Janelle. Um, he took the presidency of Princeton in 1758, but died shortly thereafter, uh, again of pneumonia. So. Just some biographical facts on Mr. Edwards. Now let's move to his conversion. He grew up again in a childhood, uh, a child of a Christian home. He said it was his delight to begin his spiritual duties. So he he loved doing the things of church. He loved going to church. He loved the Lord's Day. He loved prayers. He loved all of those things. Rumor has it he would go into the woods with his friends, and they would they would they had this pretend church that they built in the woods and they would pray and pretend to have church. He wanted to be a minister after college, but his parents objected because they didn't think he was actually converted yet. And this is kind of the Puritan hangover. So this is like late, you know, early 1700s, right? So Puritans were, you know, sometimes Edwards is called the last of the Puritans. Uh, so the Puritans were still, they were still going on. They were at the tail end of that. They were notoriously rigorous in, in understanding if someone was actually converted or not and what that meant. Edwards could never really satisfy his parents or really his own conscience if he was truly converted. They had three steps. The first one was conviction or awakening. You're convicted of your sin. The second step was humiliation. You were heartbroken over your sin. You knew you couldn't save yourself. And then the third part is regeneration, where you finally have new life in Christ and it's received by faith. Edwards didn't feel like he could get past that second step. He just kind of continually felt humiliated and uh, just couldn't satisfy. So his parents were not real excited about him going into the ministry. Although his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, thought that unconverted people could go into the ministry, which is just like, because the standard for conversion was so high that he thought like, you know, maybe you'll get converted once you're in the ministry. You know, you're probably on the right track. So it's that, it's that Puritan kind of hangover where they were so, um, so the, the standard of conversion proof was so high. Um, but he did have a conversion experience nonetheless. He was reading one day and he came to 1 Timothy 1.17, which is a, a pretty strange conversion verse. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. 
okay, that's a pretty strange verse to be converted by. But think about all the kind of the, the backloading of all this spirituality that Edwards had, all the knowledge that he had that was building up, all from you know, his father, his grandfather, his father-in-law. And when he got to this verse, he was overwhelmed with the enormity of the divine nature of God in his glory. He said he, he was swallowed up in just the glory of God. You think about that, just uh, the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He said he had a new sense like he'd never experienced before. Joy, he said he prayed at that moment, but he didn't really actually even think that was a conversion experience. He thought it was more of just this emotional experience where he kind of got to experience the love and the glory of God in a different way. Um, only looking back on it did he realize, yeah, that was it. That was the moment that it really clicked. And so he was content to dwell much on the glory of God. And uh, it kind of teaches us that testimonies, again, are, are less about us and more about the glory of God and what he does to save us. Right? I'm sure we've all had those testimony experiences or hearing testimonies where people are just kind of making much of their sin or making much of themselves and you know and then at the end oh yeah i i accepted jesus and i'm a christian now and maybe i'm exaggerating but edwards definitely uh had a lot of weight put on the glory of god in the conversion process after that his spiritual appetites were awakened he then dove into reading and writing and tracking down all these theological mysteries and this was about when he was about 20 years old, uh, this all happened. So. so observations, applications from his conversion story. Is that a weird conversion story or what? Right? <laughs> it's a weird verse to think of. This will go away. Oh, no, I turned it off. <laughs> yeah, that, that made it go away for sure. It's been a long... It, it'll come back. Um, what did you go? What do you think about those three rules? Conviction, humiliation, regeneration. I suppose they're good guidelines because they do make sense. But to enforce it that, like, well, if you haven't dwelt on these things, then you can't possibly be saved, seems a little bit unrealistic. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> they seem yeah. like no, okay, those they, those make sense, but at yeah. the same time, like. I don't know if one person was like, well, I don't feel humiliated. Could I actually claim, right. well, you're not saved? I right, right. They also threw in there kind of that first step, the idea of legal terrors. The idea that you are so far from the Lord, you know you can't save yourself, but you're trying desperately to clean yourself up. And you're, you're um, trying to turn over a new leaf, which of course then that leads to inevitable failure because we could never clean ourselves up enough to be accepted by God. And then you're fearing then the consequences. Oh no, I've sinned and I've failed God once again. It's kind of this endless cycle that I think Edwards was stuck in those first two. But yeah, it's, uh, what is all that missing? If you're stuck in that cycle of I'm trying to please God, I failed to please God. Oh no, I blew it, I'm failure. Uh, just the whole grace part, the yeah. forgiveness part. Absolutely. Grace, yeah, definitely. Grace and forgiveness is totally missing um, in that. And then what about us? I mean, we don't really have standards necessarily. We don't have three steps that 
tell us if someone's saved or not. But yeah, that, that's what my question would have been: <clears throat> what would be our contemporary standard for yeah. acknowledging someone's conversion? Yeah, when they start giving to the church. <laughs> no, that's I, I don't know if people give or not. I don't know who gives. Just throwing that out there. Just kidding. That was a that joke. That just sounded like it so well. Um, did, didn't it? TV engine. <laughs> you want me to play some Joel? <laughs> what do you think? How can we tell if somebody's uh, saved? So somebody walks up and you say, No, there are Christians by their love. By their love. love. So we see outward works, fruta. maybe? See fruta. No, fruta, no fruta, no fruta. No fruta, no fruta, right? Yeah, we see some we see some fruit hanging on the tree, right? Yeah. We see fruits of the spirit. We see good deeds done. We see. Uh, and it could be. I mean, if I feel like a lot of it would depend on the actual person. You might see a softening in them of someone yeah. that was more hardened. Yeah. You know about things. You know, a lot of times you just see like a peace or a change in their countenance. Yeah. You know, and just wanting to read the Bible and learn more and right. know more and asking questions and you know so not only outward kind of good yeah. deeds but you also see a spiritual appetite that's been right. awakened where people are like yeah I want to be in church yeah I want to you know I want to read the Bible I want to surround yourself with other believers and grow and yeah be accountable yeah what about holiness desire to grow in holiness caring about sin like, oh man, I sinned and trying to put sin to death and grow and mature as a disciple. Those are some indicators I think are pretty scriptural that we can look at and see for believers today. And that's really what the elders do, right? They try and, someone wants to join the church, we try and, and uh, ascertain the legitimacy of their testimony, right? The credibility, I guess you'd say, of their testimony. Um, their understanding of the gospel. And are they endeavoring to live like it? Does it look like they're a Christian? <laughs> do they are they serious about? It? Do they understand what it means to be a Christian, and are they trying to live like one? And there should be evidence. There should be evidence. If you claim to be a Christian, you should kind of look like a Christian, right? Kind of crazy thought. Well, uh, no, it almost sounds like a I didn't mean dress oh, like a Christian. We'll have to wear you know, tight collars or <laughs> No, definitely not. <laughs> So walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, right? Probably is a duck, but we have different. We're not walking and quacking. You know, we're having outward works. We're having an appetite for holiness. We're having all of that stuff. All right, so let's talk about a little bit of his works. Um, I moved my cursor. So Edwards was a absolutely prolific writer and reader, master theologian. One of the first things that he wrote was a little diary, essentially, called Resolutions. And these were written during his first pastorate in New York City. So think about that. He's shipped off to New York City. He's 19 years old. He's starting his ministry, and he sits down and he writes, basically in his diary, resolutions and guidelines to himself. He, he sought to bring every aspect of his life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he sought to rest in the sovereignty of God. And so uh, these resolutions are still, there's a little paperback book of them. It combines uh, one of his other 
uh, works Advice to Young Converts, which is essentially a letter to a young lady who had uh, professed faith, which is also really good. But I'll just read a little bit from Resolution so you get a sense of Mr. Edwards. He starts off, Being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And he says, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. And this is what he starts with. Everyone starts with resolved. And then where he goes from there. Resolved that I would do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good profit and pleasure. In the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, in many myriads of ages hence. So he says, starting it off with a big one, right? I'm going to do whatever I think will be the most for God's glory and my profit. And note, note how those are not in conflict. Those are, those are both uh, complementary in that. Um, resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether soul or in body, but what tends to the glory of God. Um, here's a good one. Resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings of others, and to let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sin and misery to God. Here's one that talks, kind of fuels his uh, theological fire. Resolved, when I think of any theorem in divinity to be solved, immediately to do what I can towards solving it if circumstances don't hinder. You ever have a, a, a thought in your head where it's just like, ah, what about angels? Or what about like this concept of hell? Or what about this? Like Edwards would be like, okay, Time to hit the study. And he, you know, he would do that in, until he figured it out. He would just work a problem until, until he figured it out. He's, this was down to the level of eating and drinking. Number 20, he says, resolve to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. And I'll give you a little bit, um, a little bit of more of what he would do with that. So he, he's down to... to what he, what's that? No Dairy Queen for him. No Dairy Queen for Mr. Edwards. He says, um, he carefully observed the effects of different sorts of food and selected those which best suited his constitution and rendered him most fit for mental labor. Thus he abstained from every quantity and kind of food that made him sick or sleepy. Edwards had set this pattern when he was 21 years of old when he, 21 years old when he wrote in his diary, by sparingness of diet and eating as much as what may be light and easy of digestion, I shall doubtless be able to think more clearly and gain more time. And so he's just like, okay, wait, is this what I'm going to eat? Is this going to allow me to sit and study the Word of God? Or am I going to be like burping up that burrito I just ate? Or am I going to make me go to bed because I just had milk and cookies? Or, or New York know? bagels. Or bagels, right? In addition to his diet, he also maximized his exercise. In the winter, he would chop firewood for half an hour each day. In the summer, he would ride into the fields and walk alone in meditation. So he was, this was not just this nerdy theological stuff. This was like practical life management in that. 22, he says, resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can speaking about heaven. Like, what can I do now to maximize my rewards in heaven? 
Let me see if I can pick out a couple more. There are 70 uh, in all that he has resolution. Um, resolve to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I've acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Most of us have the opposite effect, right? When we go to bed, we're like, oh, why did I eat that? But he's like, oh, did I do it right? Did I, did I eat well? Um, Resolved, whenever my feelings begin to appear in the least bit of out of order, when I'm conscious of the least uneasiness within or the least irregularity without, I will then subject myself to the strictest examination. So in other words, he gets into a bad mood or he gets stressed or anxious or something like that. He's, why, am, why is this happening? And he's examining himself for that. Um, you can go on and on and on. But if you've never read Edward's Resolutions, you should read Edward's Resolutions. I have two copies of Edward's Resolutions for anyone who would like to read. I have one of them already. Don't all jump at once. They'll be in your library. I'll leave them here so you can run up afterwards. Anyway, yeah, so very, very good. Very, very convicting. Uh, good to read in the morning for that morning shot of conviction. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go with Edwards. Um, any observations, applications from just a little bit of sticking our toe into his resolutions? Quite a diary, huh? Yeah. He spent a lot of time in, um, looking at nature. Yes. Figuring out the natural world yep. and its relationship and how God was so perfectly... Yeah. Yeah, he was he was extremely intellectual. I mean, he was off the charts smart, but also yeah, that extended you know beyond theology, but into the natural world. He was a little bit of a scientist, and again, that all just kind of led to uh, more glory going to God and how He created things. And loved to study it, loved to be in nature, loved to ride out on horseback and be in the woods and all that. Did, uh... Did the book contain any information why his stint at the first church in uh, New York City was so short? Yes. What he actually was, it was an interim job. Um, they split. And when he came, he started preaching reconciliation and saying that you guys should reconcile from this split. And they did. And so he basically worked himself out of a job. <laughs> So yeah, it was only eight months. That was his first pastorate. You may uh, think of the Great Awakening uh, with Mr. Edwards, 1740, 1741, 1742, America's greatest religious revival. Um, there were kind of two great dangers that uh, Edwards saw uh, that were threatening the spiritual life of the American colonies at this time. One was Arminianism, and the other one was antinomianism. Arminianism, anybody want to take a stab at that? We talk a lot about Calvinism, and of course well, I, Edwards was a raging Calvinist. But I think that the Arminian view is that you have a role to play in your own salvation by, by offering your life up to Christ rather yeah. than it being a totally... A a work of God. Yeah, there's there's a, a bunch in that that kind of decreases the sovereignty right. of God and elevates us as far as choice. Um, 
God sees a little bit of good in us kind of thing. He, God saves those who he thinks will uh, be most apt to respond to him. So it's uh, when you have, if you think of Calvinism, to sum it up on the top shelf as something that just elevates the sovereignty of God, Arminianism tends to uh, demote the sovereignty of God for the sovereignty of us, you might say. And so that was a huge, and the danger of that is then you become the center of your religion, and God is in your service. And so when your life starts going wrong, you're like, what the heck, God? Your, your job is supposed to make my life easy and comfortable, and that's not happening. That's <coughs> a massive generalization. But anyway, uh, antinomianism, anybody? Big word. The Greek word nomos, law against the law of God. So there's no regard for the law of God. Edwards was, again, continued to be horrified by the behavior of people. And some of that stuff we would laugh at now, like, you know, card playing or, you know, what was one of the things they called it? Night walking? Which I couldn't figure out if it just actually meant walking around at night. But, you know, if you're walking around at night, I guess you're more apt to go to the local tavern, which, of course, was an issue as well, so... But he met these dangers by preaching a, a series of messages on justification by faith. Oh, shocker, right? It was kind of like the, what they called the Second Reformation. It was happening in the United States. So revival broke out, hundreds of conversions in Northampton. So kind of his church was kind of the epicenter of this as it kind of started and then reverberated out from there. Um, he saw before this time people of extreme... Uh, licentiousness, extreme spiritual dullness, drunkenness, lewd practices, and oddly enough, the revival then began with some of the young people who started to really have spiritual appetites and, and God doing this work. You may remember our friend uh, George Whitfield, who's right around this time in the Great Awakening coming over from England. If Whitfield was the big preacher of the Great Awakening, then Edwards was the great theologian behind the Great Awakening. He was the great thinker he was kind of the brains behind the operation, right? Whitfield was this, you know, dynamic, crazy speaker that just drew thousands and thousands of people in, right? And Edwards was a good preacher in his own right, but he wasn't Whitfield in that sense. He was way more cerebral, way more um, precise in his sermons as well. So the Great Awakening. What, what things do you think of when you think of the, the Great Awakening? things come to mind besides every day when the alarm goes off and it's time for us to get up is it a good thing is it a bad yes, thing but i mean didn't, didn't even edwards like preach kind of like george whitfield went through and he's like okay now i need to preach my own people because they're just getting a little hysterical about this guy so i think I mean, at least for me, the Great Awakening, it really kind of brings up the idea of like the tent revival that rolls through town and everybody's all excited and maybe there is real change involved, yep. but it can be a flash in the pan too. Yep. So, I mean, at least Edwards, he was more or less in the same spot for decades. So if, if good, great changes were happening in his town, he could stay there and help the people. Yeah. But again, with, with uh, Whitfield, who just kind of preached and moved on, it, it didn't necessarily mean the Great Awakening would be this permanent change in the hearts of the people yeah yeah definitely and we're gonna we're gonna hit that next i think as we talk about some of the areas of his theology but absolutely 
the kind of the tipping point uh what are we dealing with here is this just a lot of emotion or is this actual gospel change I think there was happening? a lot of emotion especially oh yeah like, you know, appealed to so many <clears throat> youths okay yep. 300 to 1100 youths joined the church but then there was a, a turn a dark side where suicides increased after oh really so, yeah i didn't realize that so because the emotional so, letdown. Yeah, yeah. You know how kids get. You know, blah, blah, blah. yeah. Then they don't have to do that. Yeah. There's not something of substance. To yeah. Keep I mean, in many ways, it really was the birth of American evangelicalism you know, back then. Uh, the the emphasis on conversion, the emphasis on you know uh, a response to Christ um, and emotions and people, Whitfield, as we looked at when we looked at Whitfield, was accused of. Uh, basically emotional manipulation sometimes, you know, whether it's through marketing or through drama or, you know, they didn't have laser lights and smoke machines then, but you know, if you did, you'd probably use them. Right? The idea of just drawing people in, you know, making the environment somewhat comfortable for them or, you know, kind of maybe seeker sensitive a little bit. And, you know, what are we going for here? Is there depth in that or not? There could be. It's not always painting with a broad brush and saying it's bad, but... Well, that was said, uh, too, of the evangelistic crusades that happened here in the 50s, yep. 60s, and 70s. Yep. Billy Graham yeah. and, and a lot of the guys, the same thing could be said of, of that era yeah. as well. You know, people are emotionally driven to raise their hand or walk up front and yeah. it, it may be real and it may be just temporary emotion. Right, right, right. What's the danger of an emotional faith? Well, your emotions change. <laughs> yes. Yeah, your emotions change, but yet you're dealing with an unchangeable God and a spiritual truth that cannot change. You really don't see that anymore. I think you do. I don't think you see it in New Jersey. South. Well, maybe down here. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, that's true. I think it's a different ball game once you get in the Bible Belt. More like the, um, I won't call them rock concerts, but the Christian music concerts that kids go to. Oh, yeah. And you'll see that, that emotion. Yep. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the major areas of his theology. Um, he was a biblical theologian, but he was also a rational theologian. He was organized, he was precise, he was deep. So three kind of really critical works of his um, that we can pick out some key doctrines of his. The first one to highlight was a book called Original Sin, written in 1758. What is original sin? It's the doctrine of original sin. That we are conceived guilty of sin based on Adam's sin. Yeah. We're born guilty. Yep. Born guilty because Adam was our federal head and he sinned and therefore it infected all of the human human population. Right? Is that a popular doctrine today in America? No. That large? That people are sinful by nature? No, people are mostly good. Yeah, exactly. People are mostly good, right? It's the complete opposite, right? Uh, Edwards would center his uh, theology on a text uh, like Romans 5, which he highlighted a lot in that book. Um, just give you a sample. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
and even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many men died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, and it bounded, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. And so he camped on a passage like that and would say, yeah, we're united to Adam in the sense of our original sin, that we're all born into this world sinners and separated from God, but only through faith in Jesus Christ can we then be united to Christ and therefore just as one man sinned and it led to condemnation, one man through faith in Christ can lead to our justification. Right? And so he went a lot deeper on that than a guy like uh, Whitfield would or, or some of the other uh, inert preachers that were walking around. Um, but it, it related, again, to total depravity and the idea of the curse of sin being on all human beings. Any other thoughts on original sin what's what's what do you think what's difficult to understand about original sin or or not difficult to understand but what's what's maybe troublesome about the doctrine of original sin i think people look at babies and they want to say oh it's pure innocence you know and then i think people look at themselves and they want to think no i am good i can justify my existence i can yeah. justify my deserving salvation yeah you know, and original sin kind of takes that away. It's like, no, you're not innately good. You're kind of innately evil. Yeah. So. Yeah. And we know that because kids become toddlers, right? And then they walk out their sin very, very quickly. And that don't have to spend any time training them, okay, we're going to work on hitting your sister today, okay? So you don't have to do that. Janelle, you don't have to do that at home, right? They've got to figure it out. Oh, perfect. <laughs> no, let's not go. Let's Janelle. Well, I don't know if anybody else has little kids, so that's right. We did at one point. We did at one point. 20-something years ago. So. You have to tell them the word yes. You don't have to tell them the word no. Or mine. Mine. Uh, mine. Mine or no. Yeah. They're so cute, though. That's why. Cute little sinners. Vipers and diapers? Vipers and diapers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the doctrine of original sin is, at its root, it's offensive, right? It's just like, I'm not, no, I'm not sinful. I'm a good person. Like Bob, my neighbor, like he's a sinner, but I, you know, compared to Bob, I'm a great guy, you know. I'm no Hitler, you know, I haven't killed anybody, right? We always do the comparison game, right? Yeah, take the log out of your own eye, right? Every time I'd say that, because I will, I'll do that. I'll, I'm not, I'm not like, take it out, Wendy, take it out. Yeah. You are just that bad. That's true. Okay. It, it, it maybe pushes up against, right, the whole self-esteem thing of our culture, which is like, we're not saying that we're miserable worms. We're just saying that we're sinners, that we, we can't help but sin because of the curse that's in us. And thanks be to Jesus Christ, of course, who then were united by faith. Instead of the curse of sin, we have the blessing of justification. One of the hardest things about evangelism in the church is just convincing someone that they're actually sinners, that they actually need a savior, that they're actually in danger of hell. 
But our culture, you know, it, it doesn't want to identify it as sin. It's just like, well, it's yeah. just your choices. And your choices are good for you, even if yeah. they're not good for me. It's not sin. It's right. not right or wrong. Right. Not perfect. But we also lost the concept of corporate sin. Mm -hmm. Even within the Christian church, I think we've lost this concept of falling under sin of someone else to some degree. Yeah. And that's, that is what the original sin is. And I think that's sure. a, also a really hard point to say, well, why was I born a sinner? Well, because of Adam and Eve. Right. Well, why? Right. And I think you have that, our culture is so fixated on the individual that we've lost that corporate sense. Yeah. That so many other cultures throughout history had. Right. Mm -hmm. They've had the generational sense or the even in Israel, the corporate solidarity of Israel. Yeah. Yeah. And since like we were just so fixated on the individual, I think that's also pretty. Yep. Harsh. Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. It's like, well, I didn't sin. It might have been him, but that ain't on me. Like, oh, if I was born it with it, it must be okay. <laughs> it's just that yeah. that like I can't help how I was born. So it's yeah. Um, I guess people kind of cut it off that way too. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Another big work was his work on freedom of the will, which was in 1754. And this idea of he was looking at free will. What, do you, what would you describe free will as? In this context, I guess the right to accept God or the right to deny him. Okay. Yep. Yeah, in a, in a broader context, right, maybe you use the word libertarian, right? We're at liberty to do whatever we want. And it's, we're completely independent to choose anything we want to do, all things being even. Of course, yes, choose God or, or not choose God, or in this case, sin or not sin, right? Edwards countered that there was a massive kind of libertarian free will concept happening, again, tied to probably a lot of Arminianism, um, saying that it was motive that then determined will. And if you back that even farther, motive awakens desire, which then that determines what you do. Basically, you do what you do because you want what you want. There's not, you can't be completely detached and just be, no, I'm just going to choose, I'm going to knock over that uh, wireless webcam for no reason at all. Well, it's like, well, no, you, something, there was a desire to do that somewhere. Something so so Edwards was really one of the first to link it towards desire and motivation, right? We do what we want or do what we do because we want what we want. And when we talk about salvation, right? We want sin. That's the real. That's the reality of it. Not only are we sinners, right? That's what we. That's what we know, right? We're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. Until what? Until what happens? What changes that? We're sinners until what changes that? Our conversion. Yeah, until Jesus. the Lord regenerates us and gives yeah. us a new heart. So again, it's not like, okay, I'm going to stop sinning now. Well, you can't do that because it's deeper than that. You just don't have that libertarian free will to say like, okay, this is not me anymore. No, there has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in your life in order to do that. So was he a critic of the Armenian perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, he definitely was. And the idea that God is sovereign and that, that God uh, uses all things, right? Um, 
that sin, again, through original sin, has infected each and every one of us, but, but we are not completely ever independent of, of God, especially. And he still is sovereign and still works, even over our, our wills. So our wills have to come under the subject of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we're never going to do that willingly. <laughs> All right? We know that for sure. The Lord is the one that transforms hearts and minds. A third area would be uh, religious affections that he wrote in 1746. And this gets to exactly what we were saying before about um, what are good religious affections and what are maybe not so helpful religious affections. Um, let's see. Second Corinthians 13.5. It's probably 1 Corinthians 13.5, maybe. Because that wasn't right. Nope, definitely not that either. Okay. I must have messed that up. Um, Edwards, the reason for writing religious affections was to encourage professing Christians to obey the command to rejoice in the Lord. Right? We should actually look like we have joy in the Lord. We should actually look like we're passionate about spiritual things. We should have emotions that accurately reflect some of these things. And when Edwards would look upon these two extremes, right, the one extreme of people barking like dogs and crying uncontrollably and weeping and wailing at the, at the conversion of the Great Awakenings, which is like, okay, well, you have lots of emotion, but you don't have any spiritual depth to it. And then the other side, where people were unaffected by the things of the Spirit, almost completely emotionless, like not caring, dead to the things of the Spirit, but yet they might even profess to be believers. He's saying, well, that can't be right either. Because if you are a Christian, the big quote from that book is, true religion in great part consists of holy affections. You should actually have some sort of emotion towards reading your Bible. Like when you read a passage, it should affect you in some way emotionally whether it brings you joy or hope or it brings you to tears or whatever else. And when you think of your sin, the need to repent, like that should actually hurt you. That should actually tear your soul apart. When you see someone coming to faith, you should rejoice in that. When you see the sin of the world, it should bother you. And so his idea is there should be appropriate, holy uh, affections. And that's one of the signs of an actual uh, genuine conversion in that. I guess because there was something called, what he called bodily effects. Yep. As people who were professing, they were swooning and convulsing and yeah. outcrying. And he was against that. But, but like you said, just holy affections where you, you want to be in the word. You, right. You have joy. But you're not like, look at me, look at me, I'm fainting. I'm yep. Yeah. You're not really reacting. It's not an emotional reaction to whatever, emotional manipulation or something, right? It's not an emotional driven conversion, but, you know, quite simply like reading the word and being affected by that in some way. First um, Peter 1.8 says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, right? But Edwards never lost his his moorings in the intellectual side. He said, okay, but we're not, 
We're not going to be barking like dogs. That's not what I'm talking about. You have to still anchor it in the intellectual side, what he called your choosy side. <laughs> your choosy side. Um, you can see the reaction, again, against the Great Awakening and the excessive emotion and all of that. So it's got to be grounded in thought, in intellectual thought. Our beliefs, there's a, this kind of effect. Our beliefs, what we take as reality, and our concerns, right, produce our emotions. So if you think of those two things at the bottom, like beliefs and concerns, they should then affect our emotions. So what we believe about reality and what we're concerned about, they should affect our emotions. And so, uh, take an example, I think Piper used an example in one of his books, talking about like if you get a phone call and you say your, your spouse is involved in a car accident, right? You're gonna accept that as reality. Right? And then your concerns, of course, are going to be for the well-being of your spouse. You want your spouse to be okay. So then, therefore, that should greatly inform your emotions. Right? You would have appropriately informed emotions from that. You would be upset. You'd be concerned. You'd maybe be crying. You'd be trying to get there as quickly as possible. All of that. So you see how emotion for Edwards is grounded in, in belief in reality and legitimate concern. So put those pieces together then for the gospel, right? If we believe the gospel is reality, then we should be concerned about the things that God is concerned with, like holiness, like salvation, um, like the Great Commission, like other things that we're called to in the Bible. Therefore, your emotions should come from that. They should be holy driven affections based on reality and based on legitimate concern not just whipped up emotions and not no emotion, right? So again, the danger is in the extremes, right? but you want to be grounded in both of those things. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts on religious affections? All right, one of the other things you might think about in our final five minutes Edwards has so much stuff, um, is a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Everybody's heard of that one? Preached July 8th, 1741 at a church in Enfield, Connecticut. As the story goes, he was not supposed to preach that night. He was just going to a meeting, and he was looking forward to sitting down and being preached to. However, the guy did not show up, and they looked at Edwards and said, Well, I got this sermon I wrote. It's in my saddlebag. Let me go to my horse. So he goes to his horse, gets out the sermon manuscript and preaches it, and the place blows up. The funny thing is that he had preached that at his church in Northampton, and it was kind of a sleeper. And they were like, eh, oh, huh. cool. Yeah, not really effective. But he preaches it at Enfield, Connecticut, and the Lord did a massive, massive work in that. It was a clear and powerful look at hell infinite terrible punishment for sin from a justifiably angry God. And I'll read you some wonderfully motivating quotes so you can all have nightmares tonight. He says, The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads. Speaking of the lost. Tis nothing that the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. The idea that God's sort of judgment is 
ready to strike. And the only thing then saving a sinner is God's mercy in that. And maybe the most famous quote, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire. <laughs> Think of a you know, a spider, you pick him up by the web and he's dangling over the fire. And that's the image that, that Edwards wanted to paint. Uh, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much like one holds a spider or there's some other loathsome, loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. That'll pack him in. What do, you, what do we think when we hear that? What kind of things are you thinking about when you hear? That's a sermon? He's just giving it to him both barrel. Fire and brimstone. That's fire and brimstone for sure. Yeah, well, I would think the reality of hell is an important aspect in anybody's yeah. conversion. I mean, it's an inescapable yeah. reality. Yeah. Otherwise... What do you have to lose if there's no hell? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was definitely holding nothing back. And, and you know, it's still today. You can go on YouTube or search it or whatever, and it's, it's all over the place. And it's probably the, the best known thing that he's done. But yet, he ends it with petitions to come to Christ to escape that hell. He says, Therefore, let anyone who does not know Christ awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of the Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Run for your lives. Don't look back. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. So he didn't just leave it there. He pointed people to the hope of Jesus Christ. And he's basically like, why would you do that? He says, you have an extraordinary opportunity today. Christ has flung the door of mercy open and stands in the door calling for you. Come. Why be the spider over the, over the fire? So he did balance it. He balanced it towards the end. And, and most people, you know, there are plenty of Edwards haters out there and plenty of people who love to rip that sermon to shreds. It's just the epitome of, you know, Christian hate speech and hell and all that stuff. But if you look at the whole sermon, you look at, there's a point, there's a gospel point to it that, yes, hell is real and we do need to consider it. And it is awful and atrocious. And you don't have to go there because Christ has given you the way, so why would you not run to Christ? And people did. Thousands and thousands of people ran to Christ in that. It's that sense, too, of the good news isn't really the good news without knowing what the bad news is. right? And that's been the danger of American evangelicalism, too. It's just like, well, accept Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven, and then your life will be perfect and happy, and Jesus will be your co-pilot. And it's like, well, that's a truncated gospel. That's not the whole thing. You've got to balance it. Thoughts? Comments? Encouraging yeah, why was he dismissed from his ministry position? We are getting there right now. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were We're almost done. We are pedal down for Edward's night. All right, so his grandfather, um, Solomon's daughter, he practiced open communion at his church. 
Anybody know what open communion is? Anybody? Anybody, Anybody and everybody. Okay, whether they're... Whether they're whoever, they're, okay. they're walking off the street. We have no idea their spiritual state before the Lord at all. Uh, just come on in and take the communion. He looked at it. He wasn't just necessarily slack about this. He looked at it like it's a converting ordinance. Like people could be brought to faith by doing that. Uh, Jonathan Edwards <coughs> said no way. That's, that's not what we see in the Word of God. And he said the only people that should be taking communion are regenerated members of good standing. That's kind of swung completely the other way into closed communion, where it's like, if you want to take the Lord's Supper, you must be a member of this church in good standing. And so they were kind of on, on both sides there. What does Highlands Bible Church practice? Fenced. Fenced. What do you mean by Fenced. A believer in Jesus Christ, but you don't have to be a member. Yeah, we don't we don't restrict it to members, but we do restrict it to believers in that. So when I do the table and other guys do the table, I, I just say, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, let it pass. Don't don't take the cup. Right? I think the scripture is pretty clear on that. That's called close communion. It's not open. It's not closed, but it's close. So. <laughs> You just make that up or is that a real thing? No, that's a real thing. <laughs> but this actually led to his termination. Uh, he was going to die on that hill. And so after 21 years, he was fired from his own church uh, because of a stance on communion in June 22, 1750. And, and if we think back to the beginning, right, you can, you can see how that Puritan hangover again was kind of like, well, we don't know who's saved or not anyway. So how could you even, you know, you're going to enforce this? You know, people don't know. And Edwards is like, no. I think we do. His grandfather fired His grandfather was probably dead by then, if uh, not gone, but he was the sole pastor of that by that point. And he finally tried to just enforce it. And after after years, they just said, we're done with this argument. Um, so yeah, he was dismissed by his own church. Uh, he moved to uh, Stockbridge again on the frontier and ministered to the Housatonic Indians. Um, after a couple of years there, he took the presidency of a little-known uh, university named Princeton University. And uh, before he went to Princeton, he got, this is, this is not a political statement or anything, but he got a vaccine. <laughs> it was new. And he it was new and untested. Anyway. He got the vaccine, and he got smallpox from the smallpox vaccine, and that led to pneumonia. And he actually died. And he died March 22nd, 1758. So it was just weeks, maybe even months. I think it was months into his presidency. He barely had time. His wife hadn't even joined him on campus yet. Um, and he passed away from the vaccine effects from uh, smallpox. So a couple things as we wrap up here. There is a... Um, Gerstner, who's very, very famous, he was actually a mentor to R.C. Sproul, um, said that he had, uh, Edwards had three life phases like Jesus. His first life phase was obscurity, his second life phase was popularity, and his third life phase was rejection. And, and Edwards seemed, Edwards' life seems to mirror those things pretty well. Like he, his first couple of years, I mean, you know, basically obscurity. But then with the Great Awakening, with other things, just massive popularity. And then, in a crazy turn of events, rejected and fired by his own church. 
So, thoughts on his termination and final years, things that are resonating with you. Well, he stood by his convictions. Yeah. yeah. And took the consequences that went with that. Yeah. So, are there some hills worth dying on? Yeah, there definitely are some hills worth dying on, right? First order issues for sure. Um, I probably would have died on this hill too. I think I would. Yeah. Well, was there a middle ground back then, <coughs> like like we practice today, fenced or closed communion, where there was only I don't know open communion or closed communion for members only? Yeah. I don't know if there was a middle ground back then. I don't, <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be. <coughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's pretty important based on scripture. So I would probably be right there with him in that sense. Um, but any other thoughts on, you know, he, he could have really had any other job in the world too. He got, he got uh, offers from everywhere, even overseas. Um, to go be pastor, serve as a pastor somewhere else, and, and instead, kind of true to his form, he got on his horse and went 40 miles down the road and started working with Indians. So I feel like based on what we know of his, you know, characteristics and his extreme self-discipline, and, you know, again, the, the braininess of, this, you know, 13 hours of study and everything, going out to the, you know, countryside, the edge of the known world, if you will, to preach to an Indian tribe, it just seems very outside of what he would do. Like you said, if he had other academic possibilities, yeah. that's like a, a you know, bottle left field. It's, it's just so, yeah. you know, unexpected. Like I can't yeah. see him in a teepee doing his 13 hours of study, <laughs> and, you know, unless it was like, you know, linguistic study. It's how can I, how can I communicate with these people? But, you know, yeah. but. And a lot of times he worked with, obviously through an interpreter too. Would Brainerd have influenced him this way? Like, Brainerd would have been dead at this point, right? And he was the one that did so. thousands of miles preaching to all the different tribes in New Jersey. Yeah, I would say almost undoubtedly he had to have an influence on that with Brainerd's passion for ministry amongst the Native Americans. Yeah. But a remarkable man, one that still, uh, still impacts us to this day in many, many ways. If you are into uh, John Piper, which we've been bearing, uh, borrowing a lot from his book, you probably wouldn't have John Piper if it wasn't for Edwards at all. It just impacted him that much. And if you take away John Piper, then you take away a lot of other guys, too. <laughs> yeah, that idea of uh, Christian hedonism, Piper calls it. The idea of, you saw it in one of Edwards' resolutions, the idea of, no, I am trying to get for myself as much possible joy as I can in the Lord. Right? Not joy in sin, but joy in the Lord. And fighting for uh, rewards in the next life. Right? Piper's got that mantra, right? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's Edwards to the core. He believed in that. So. Alright, well let me pray for us. We'll return you to your Wednesday evenings. Father, thank you for um, uh, the life of another a giant of the faith as we think about uh, Edwards and, and Lord, what he uh, stood for 
and just the massive contributions. Uh, thank you that we still have his writings, Lord. We pray that as we think about these things that you will continue to draw us up in thoughts of you, uh, deepen us, strengthen our faith, and be glorified in us. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.